Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Humanity Examined, the show where we talk with individuals about how to get the most out of life through the lens of humanities. I'm James Maloney. Today, I'm honored to be here with one of America's greatest documentarians. His work extends through some of the most fascinating periods in American history, from the conflict of the Civil War to the founding of our national parks and to the turmoil of Vietnam, just to name a few. He has recently released his latest documentary on Benjamin Franklin, exploring the life of one of America's greatest citizens. Without any further delay, I'm happy to introduce Mr. Ken Burns. How are you today? Fine. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time to be with me. My pleasure. My pleasure. And now I want to begin at an early age. You were very well read and you fell in love with history. What was some of the material that got you interested and what was the process? Well, you know, it's my interest in history is um, funny. I didn't really know that I was. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading history. I enjoyed uh, talking about it. But it wasn't anything I thought I'd be involved in. Uh, I wanted to, from a very early age, be a filmmaker, which is a storyteller. And the word history is mostly made up of the word story plus high, which is a good way to begin. And so I had one of the most um, fortuitous harmonic uh, convergences when I arrived in college where my initial desire to be a Hollywood uh, director got changed to a documentary and all of a sudden I realized that I had this completely untutored love for American history and that sort of came together and I've been very very lucky that I've been able to pursue that for nearly 50 years. And what were some of the films that really got you to decide like I want to be a filmmaker I want to do this? Well, it's interesting. It, it, my experience in filmmaking, the desire is born in tragedy. My mother was sick with cancer, and she died um, just before my 12th birthday when I was 11. And uh, my dad had a, normally had a very strict curfew for my younger brother and me, but he for great gave it if there was a movie on TV or that we would go to. And I remember watching with him a movie called Odd Man Out by Sir Carol Reed about the Irish troubles. And my dad started crying. And I'd never seen my dad cry, not when my mom was sick, not when she died, not at the funeral, just had, he'd been stoic. And I suddenly realized that the film, the emotions in the film, very tragic story, um, had permitted him some sort of emotional safe haven. And it w it sort of stunned me. And I kind of... I don't think I vowed, but I, but I realized I wanted to do that. I wanted to be, a, a, as I would later say, an emotional archaeologist, not of sentimental or nostalgic things, but something more complex. Wow, that is very inspiring, very inspiring story indeed. Um, now, um, your documentaries have brought a new standard to education through your use of visuals. If we were to take a broader view, what would be the effect of your work on education? Well, I don't know. I've been very lucky all of my professional life to be associated with public broadcasting. All of the films I've made have first had their initial public showing on PBS. And unlike most broadcast television, and indeed most stuff, um, it doesn't disappear like skywriting with the first breeze. And one of the things that they are charged with doing is having an educational component and having a long life. So um, 
I'm very, very happy that films that I've made decades ago are still, you know, being used in schools. PBS is able to, to reach every classroom in the country, um, and they do with different programming. And I think from fairly early grades on up through high school and college, people are using our films, whether it's the Civil War or Lewis and Clark or baseball or jazz or Prohibition or whatever it might be. Um, one of my daughters is uh, in high school, and they were show her teacher, completely humanities teacher, uh, took out and showed bits of the Vietnam War film that you had mentioned uh, as their history gets up that, that far. And actually, speaking of your work with PBS, I kind of wanted to ask, like, what was your, what's your experience working with public broadcasting, and what separates public broadcasting from the private? What's the benefit? Well, a lot of things. There are no commercials, and then people immediately make fun of the fact that there's so much pledge drives that they don't take up as much time as people think they do. Um, for me, it's that I have been able to be, ha every film that I put out is the director's cut. But more importantly, with the good fortune that I've been able to have, I could go to any premium cable thing or a, um, uh, a streaming service and, and get, with no fuss, and it's still incredibly difficult to raise money, uh, enough money in one conversation to get the entire funding safe for the Vietnam you know, many, many millions, ten, many tens of millions of dollars. Um, and they would say yes in, in, a, in a short pitch, but they wouldn't give me 10 and a half years to do it, which is what it took on PBS. So I don't work for PBS. I'm an independent producer, but I um, finish the films and they show, they, they look at them to see if it's acceptable for their broadcast standards. And then uh, they put it on and it's seen by many, many millions of people the first time, and then it just has that afterlife. So to me, it's the combination of that. Plus the initials PBS. Obviously it's public and broadcasting, but most people think the S stands for system. It doesn't, it stands for service, which brings us right back to the humanities. There's no other place on the dial that's curious about the life of the mind, that's curious about the soul's survival. It's curious about the things that animate or ought to animate our daily lives. You know, your documentaries give the whole picture. You know, specifically, I had the pleasure of watching Ben Franklin. And within it, we find that Franklin never completed his formal education. And what does this say about our systems of education today? Should it be viewed in another context? Or what's wrong with our systems? <laughs> well, there's a lot wrong. Um, but it, it, there's enough, you know, responsibility all around from the individual to society to whatever. But the scholar H.W. Brands in the film says that, you know, schools teach you what you need to know, but they also teach you what you don't need to know. So there's a big, huge negative space of you, you can concentrate on this and not do that. Franklin, having only two years of elementary school teaching, didn't know what he didn't have to know. So he figured he'd have to know everything. And that's the key to Franklin, to me, is, is, is that. All of the curiosity, all of the pursuit, all of the self-knowledge, all of the, the interest in science, in politics, in art, in all of these different things comes from, uh, from that sort of desire to know everything. And in the 18th century, it was pretty close to it. None of us now can, can get 1%, but it was possible to get 
to know a lot. And and though we do live in this technological age where we we can't know every single thing, you know, based on that, it seems like you're a man who tries to pursue that. Well, you know, my I I really like my job, and I think I've got the best job in the country, and it educates all of my parts, and or it has the opportunity to if I would pay attention. And, and so I get to dive deeply into things I don't know about. I don't make films about things I know about. I make things about things I want to know about. And then rather than tell you what you should know, the last time I checked, that's called homework, <laughs> I, I would share with you a process of discovery, which has inherent in it a certain amount of enthusiasm and a certain amount of kind of passion that's generated from not just the study of an individual, but knowing what to leave out. The, you know, filmmaking is like making maple syrup, as we do in New Hampshire. It takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. And so there's a lot that's not in that we have to collect. It's necessary to the process. So you're constantly sensitive to what I've called the negative space of creation, what's not used. And, and I think there's some excitement in being able to generate a story out of something, because life doesn't organize itself into stories. Life is seemingly chaotic. And what we do, and we've done it, Aristotle is the first one to sort of decide to set down the rules of it in his essay Poetics you know, beginning, middle, and end, protagonist, antagonist, climax, denouement, all of those things are just, they come essentially from Aristotle. And it, everybody recognizes it. Everybody follows that, uh, the, the, the unwritten, sometimes unspoken laws of, of storytelling, which is organizing human events. And that's what we have to do. And there's kind of excitement coming from that when you're, when you're um, trying to tell somebody as complex and as multi-talented as, as Benjamin Franklin. So, so what's on the cutting room floor is, is always good. It's not bad. It just didn't fit. And there's an exhilaration in having to make a choice. I, it's a funny, it sounds probably very strange, but there are things that I really wish could be in the film, but I know in my heart they cannot be, and that's a good thing, that we were able to impose some sort of discipline. Absolutely. And, and on that note, you know, out of all of your documentaries, you know, which has been the most fun to work on? Oh, fun. I don't know. They're all hard to do. Uh, some are very, very complicated and difficult. Vietnam was very difficult. I've just finished a film uh, that will be out in the fall on the United States and the Holocaust. That has been as difficult as it gets. But the process is the same. And so each one of the films that I've made has had aspects of it that are fun, that are funny, in which you've been able to have a laugh. And sometimes it's dark humor that you need to have just to get through the, the sort of this, the tragedy of the subject matter. And, and other times it's fun. The things I've done on music, on jazz, and on country music have had a lot of fun, even though if you look at those films, they're also filled with loss and tragedy and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And out of, you know, out of all that research and uh, events that are gone through, I mean, who out of all the Americans that you've studied are probably some of the most interesting that you've seen? Ben Franklin is, is, is really up there. Um, you know, I've been a fan of Abraham Lincoln, but I think I would have to say that if I had to pick one, it would be Louis Armstrong. Um, I, I was so stunned that in jazz studies, nobody can agree on anything. 
anything. And they, the arguments are vociferous and, and heated in a way that I hadn't experienced on any other film, not baseball where the passions are high, and not the Civil War where you expect things to be at the most sort of uh, boiling point. Uh, all of them were, all of the scholars from different perspectives argued vociferously, but the, the passions of jazz really surprised me. But just about everyone agreed that Louis Armstrong was this gift from God. He is the most important person in music. I didn't say uh, jazz in the 20th century. He, um, he is to music what Einstein is to physics, what Freud is to medicine, and what the Wright brothers are to travel. It's a quantum change that he's able to affect. And everybody would say to me when we'd interview him that he is a gift from God or an angel. And in the course of my travels around, I, I was introduced to a woman who, for lack of a better word, is some sort of medium or, or something like that. And I just happened to describe this, that nobody can agree about anything, but everyone says that he's a gift from God or an angel. She closed her eyes, she opened her arms wide, and said, the biggest wings I've ever seen. So uh, I just think he was there. He, his overwhelming message was of love. On the opposite end, I'm wondering if there are any individuals or subject, subjects that you have wanted to pursue, but there, you've uh, hit a wall, so to speak, or you were stopped in your tracks, or, or there just simply wasn't enough information. Well, I did want to pursue at the beginning of this um, century uh, a film on Martin Luther King, and I didn't pursue it because I was worried that the family, which is notoriously controlling of his image and his speeches and things like that, wouldn't allow me to make the free and unfettered film I wanted to. But strangely and coincidentally, they wrote me and said, we think you are the one person to um, make the film about our, my husband and, and our father. And I said, you're right, I am. But I went to Atlanta and I spent one day with um, Mrs. King and their and their their folks around them, I realized it wouldn't be possible because of the control that I that they would want to exert. Understandably, this is a human being that uh, a father and a, and a husband and who in life was not in their possession. And I think there was a tendency, very understandable, to control in death. And I just didn't want to sit here talking to you and be apologizing for why that film is different. Nonetheless, we have spent the last decade filming as many people as we can who worked with him, who remembered him. Many of them have subsequently passed away. And not always the famous people. We did do Andrew Young and, and John Lewis before he passed away. But we were able to get the person who drove the car from the airport and drove him around Albany, Georgia, or Birmingham, Alabama, or Memphis, Tennessee, and somebody whose house he stayed at, or, or a civil rights worker in that case. So we're beginning to sort of a mass, I hope a critical mass of footage that will then allow us to kind of go back and knock on the door again and see if things are a little bit more fluid. And it's truly a wonderful process that you have that you have come to master over these years of working with these documentaries and it's a system that works and it works wonderfully. It tells stories, it is informative, and they're fun to watch again. So, so, and um, you know, with with that, I remember we were talking about social media a little earlier, and, and we're living in the information age. At a time when people's attention spans are being shrunk to the length of Twitter or Instagram, how do we remain committed to, you know, making sure that 
people are engaged and, and uh, you know, wanting to rewatch it and learn about the content. Well, I think it is the hand-wringing of any age to say, oh, we've lost the attention span. I remember when the Civil War series was about to be broadcast in the late summer of 1990, the critics said, this is terrific, but nobody's going to watch it. Everybody's watching MTV, and they're just two minutes thing. Well, it's still the highest rated program in the history of PBS. Its premiere was seen by tens of millions of people. So I would suggest that, yes, there are huge, big uh, distractions to our attention, but that for everyone, and I know for you, even though I don't know you, that the work you're proudest of and the relationships you care the most about have benefited from your sustained attention. And that, that, that is what it is. So there is room for kittens playing with balls of yarn. And there is room for 18-hour films on, on the Vietnam War. And we just know that meaning accrues in duration. And it, what is required of us is to develop an attention to, to accompany intention that permits us to um, do a deep dive into something. It still does not judge or make wrong kittens playing with balls of yarn. It's very cute and it's very necessary and I love kittens and I love balls of yarn. So uh, that we don't have to make anything wrong here. We just say there, there ought to be within the human um, experience room for both of those things. Except I, I just have been thinking recently about what Ben Franklin, you know, the first question I got uh, well, on the promotional tour for this, virtual promotional tour, the first person said, well, what would Ben Franklin think of social media? You know, kind of a, as, and I said, well, he was social media. We always think that somehow our days are different and they, they have some very glaring superficial differences, but it's mostly the same. Mm -hmm. So he, here is a guy who is a printer and a publisher. He, he, he makes almanacs. He's a, a newspaper man and he's a postmaster. He is Google, he's Apple, He's Facebook and he's Twitter all at once. But he would look at this and he would worry, as your last question implied, about things. And he said, now, my, from my observations of, of science, I'm now making up what Benjamin Franklin arriving on the scene would say, from my observations of science, I would, I would see that a web is a place where you get stuck and then you get killed. And I think he would remind us that the, that the World Wide Web is, is beneficial in lots of ways and also a trap. Absolutely right. And, you know, with our, you know, you are a filmmaker. And I wanted to ask this as kind of maybe sort of a closer. Um, you know, though you are a filmmaker, do you see yourself as an educator? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I know that I am, but in a kind of secondary effect, right? I'm, you know, a filmmaker, which means I tell stories. And the same laws of storytelling apply to documentary as they do to feature films. So Steven Spielberg, someone I know, I've sat, you know, and we've interviewed each other, and we agree. You know, he can make stuff up. I can't. But the same laws apply to us equally. Of, of storytelling. And, and I know, too, that because of the choice of stories I've been interested in, that they have an, a, an educational value. And we work very hard developing the materials that will accompany the films to help communicate that. But first and foremost, uh, I'm a storyteller. The, the novelist Richard Powers said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. 
And those changes take place not in objective. Don't you see you're missing the point? It happens in very funny ways. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan and a racist. What do you do when Jackie Robinson comes up in 1947? So it seems to me you'd have three choices. You have lots of choices, but let's just narrow it down for argument's sake to three. You can change teams, but his arrival's going to signal, and did in fact, that other teams would be accepting African Americans. You could change sports, but other sports, pro football, which was a nothing thing, had already invited at least two men uh, to play, or you can change. And I think what happens is that people don't know what to do, don't understand that they're a racist or this way or that. So Jackie Robinson comes in, completely transforms the fortunes of the relatively hapless Brooklyn Dodgers, and they become contenders and, you know, barely, you know, lo always lose the World Series like the Red Sox and then get to win in 1955. Um, he's, he's the major reason for that change. And I think that what happens is, is that you begin to suddenly let down some of the things that might inform the way you think about black people. And um, if you're a kid and you're being taught one thing by the neighborhood, by by your parents, and you're still seeing this as a hero, this is a great thing. And if you're an African-American kid, it becomes a door of possibility because that has been excluded. Our so-called national pastime is not until April 15th, 1947. You know, anything before that you can't call a golden age or really great because systematically what we later learn some of the greatest, if not the greatest players, had been excluded. Yeah, wow, super insightful, you know, and, and a wonderful example uh, with that. Just one final question uh, to go along with this is, how can we be better educators in our society today? Well, you know, I really think that education is the front line of the most important aspect of how we stitch ourselves together as a people, as a society, and we know that that tapestry is very worn and frayed. And so I don't have any position, uh, I'm not in any position to lecture or to tell people how to do it. I know that we are in a visual aid and so, uh, age and so that sometimes visual materials can at least invite people to the table. The book is still the best machine I know. So I, to me, telling stories is an important way. I remember I walked into a world history class um, in 11th grade with a guy teaching it named Randy Peacock at Pioneer High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he started talking about the assassination of Rasputin, this sort of mystical uh, kind of grand vizier to the, to the czar. And even the kids who draw pictures of horses in the back seat, uh, the back seats, even the kids who were the fooling around kids, disruptive or not paying attention, even those, what everybody had their eyes riveted and their mouths wide open 
as he described that the poisoning and the stabbing and the shooting still didn't get him as he went into the river and came up through the ice and finally drowned. It, I mean, all of us were just, you know, lit on fire by a good story. And so I go back to Richard Powers saying it may not be in, in the service of changing people's minds, but it is a way that human beings communicate to one another is they organize the events that has have just gone before honey how was your day or you know tell me about the Vietnam War they're the, that's the same question and it is our responsibility as human beings to try to organize that in a way that both presents it as a story but also has the possibility of 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 having its the whole be greater than the sum of the parts, which is at the end of the day all you ever want out of anything. The experience of drinking a cup of tea in the morning, of driving on a road you haven't been on, of driving on a road you've been on every single day of your life, of seeing, meeting a new friend, of being with a friend you've known all your life. All of these require a kind of reinvigoration that can happen uh, when your senses are heightened that way. And I think stories are one of those things that, you know, art, music, uh, faith, all of these things have the possibility of, of waking us up from the ordinary torpor that is our lives. Absolutely. I totally agree. Storytelling truly is one of the best forms of education, one of the best ways of teaching lessons and showing us our humanity. That's all the time we have for this episode of Humanity Examined. Mr. Burns, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This was a very fruitful conversation, and I'm sure that our audience will love to hear your words today. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Take care. Hey folks, this is James again. Did you enjoy our episode today? Are you ready to take your reading journey to the next level? Then you should definitely check us out online and on social media. For all things humanities, you can find us at www.anselm.edu humanities institute. And be sure to check us out on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at STA Humanities. Keep on reading and stay well.